new faces and some returning faces as well. I can uh, want to just first introduce what we're going to be doing uh, for this uh, season. I think we can confidently say that the fall season is here. Uh, school started, uh, football's begun, it's getting colder these past couple of days. And if that hasn't convinced you, uh, you can see that pumpkin spice is back. So now fall is here. So with that new season, we're also beginning a new sermon series, a series called uh, Renewal's Core Values. Uh, Last week, I explained how our church uh, typically uh, does what we call expositional preaching. And what that is, is uh, we preach throughout a particular book of the Bible from beginning to the end. So this past year, uh, we studied the book of Romans, started in January, we finished last week, Romans 16, the 30th message. And so that's our typical way of studying scripture, but from time to time, we do what we call topical preaching. A topical preaching is preaching on a series of topics, and that's what we're going to be doing for the rest of this year. We'll be preaching on renewal's core values. Now, you may ask, why? Why the core values? And the reason is we're almost reaching our one-year mark as renewal mainline. And as we continue to establish our church, it's important for us to know what our church is all about. Uh, In our church, there are probably various ways that you see yourselves. You might see yourself uh, as a newcomer, uh, someone who's just attended, trying to get uh, your your bearings on what this church is all about. Or you might be an old-timer who's been attending Renewal for a long time, whether it be at Devon or at West Philly. But regardless of where you see yourself, it is important for all of us to be united to see what we see this church representing, what we see the foundational values of this church. So whether you are new or you've been here for a while, what we want to do is calibrate or recalibrate our understanding of what church is supposed to be. A church that is built on God's values, not on the things that we simply want. Because you and I know Especially today, especially in our environment, the tendency for us is to see church not as God's church built on God's values, but like a fitness center, a center that just meets my needs, the things that I want, the goods and services that I'm paying for. For example, when you check out a new gym, what are the kinds of questions you ask? How are the facilities, how are the equipment, the treadmill, and the weights? And this translates to, how well run are the ministries here at Renewal? How's the praise music? Does the children's ministry provide a a fun environment for my kids? Or we ask questions like, how much does the fitness center cost? And this translates to, what kind of commitment does this church expect me to have? Is it a place where I can simply fill an empty seat and leave? Or is it going to demand me to be committed to this church, to take ownership of this church? Can I simply be here instead of being a member here? We could ask questions like, what are the trainers like at the fitness center? What are the members like? And that translates to, uh, what are the, the pastors and leaders like? How's the preaching? Does the style of preaching fit the way that I want to hear God's word? How are the people? Do their personalities and interests match mine? And again, all to say, it is very easy for us to have this kind of mentality 
as we begin and establish our church. Now, this is not to say we're not to strive for our best to honor God, but especially in our environment, it is far too easy to see church as a fitness center where we don't put God at the center of our lives, but rather we put ourselves at the center of God's church. And the way we do that is for us to value what God values. And therefore, my prayer is for us in this season to calibrate our minds, our understanding on what God deems important for your life and for this church. So throughout this series, we're going to be discussing a variety of topics such as worship, life transformation, how people change, what God sees in community, mercy, and justice. But before we tackle these topics, uh, we're going to begin with the foundation upon all of these things are built upon, and that is the gospel. Because all of these are gospel-centered values. And we're going to start with that question this morning. What is the gospel message? And for many of us, we know that the message is Jesus Christ being fully God became fully man, taking on the flesh of man, dying for our sins, and being raised on the third day. And many of us know that, and we know the content of the gospel. But we see there is much more to the content of the gospel. But rather, now what do our lives look like in light of this gospel? How do we live our lives? How do we study and raise our children the way we work? As is commonly said, the gospel changes everything. It's much more than you might think it is. It is. One Christian author says, some understand the gospel as simply a doctrinal content to be believed. That's one view. Others, they diminish the gospel to this personal, subjective experience that they they receive perhaps at a retreat when you are younger. Others, they see the gospel as being of social justice. One that provides help and relief for the poor. And he says, a truly gospel-centered church It's none of these. At the same time, it's all of these. Because a truly gospel-centered church understands and embraces the fullness of the the gospel in all of these things. So what does it mean to have a gospel-centered view of how to raise your kids? What does it mean to have a gospel-centered view of the way you study for your exams? or the way that you interview for that job, the way that we worship here, the way that we see community here. And so that is the plan and our goal for this semester. Because we believe that only when we are grounded upon this message do we actually have a message to say to those outside of these walls. So the question is, what is the gospel? And to do that, we're going to be studying from the gospel of Luke, the parable of the prodigal son. And the reason why we chose this passage, because we want to begin with, what kind of people is this church to be filled with? What kind of people are we to be? And we'll study this passage in three parts. Number one, the prodigal younger brother. Number two, the prodigal older brother, and finally, the prodigal God. The prodigal younger brother, older brother, and God. So with that introduction, let's bow our heads and pray and ask for God's help as we study his word. 
Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your message of the gospel, and we thank you that it's not just a message to be believed so we can have a free ticket to heaven, but it's a message that tells us how to live now, how to worship, how to honor you, and as we sung, to glorify your name. God, we don't want the gospel to be something that happened 2,000 years ago or something that's going to happen when you return. We want the gospel to take effect into our lives. Now we believe that there is power in your gospel. So with that conviction, help us to receive your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So number one, the prodigal younger brother. We see in our passage, the younger son, he says, doesn't ask, but he demands his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, let's take a moment to consider what that means because we have to kind of think uh, the way that, that wealth and status worked back then. For a lot of us, we're very much accustomed to these rags to riches stories, right? Where you begin very poor at the bottom of the social ladder, but with hard work, with some luck and some encounters, you climb your way up to the top. Bill Gates started his company in, the, in an empty garage in his neighborhood with his friend. Mark Zuckerberg, he started his company in, in his college dorm. Now he's one of the richest, youngest men in the world. How about Richard Montañez? Do you know who he is? Richard Montañez. Who here likes flaming hot Cheetos? Richard Montañez, whom you might know, is a classic rags-to-riches store. He grew up sharing a kitchen with six other families, dropped out of high school, worked as a janitor at a Frito-Lay plant in Rancho Cucamonga. And one day, he thinks, I need some spice on my Cheetos. And he goes home and makes up this concoction of spices and puts it on his Cheetos, and here we go. He's now the executive vice president of the multicultural sales for Pepsi. Unlike Richard Montañez, unlike Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates, back then, where this story is taking place, the main way that someone got wealthy, it's not because they simply worked hard for it. Because back then, it was much harder to become rich in only one lifetime. Almost impossible. The way that you were rich was when you inherited it. That was the common way to be rich, and that was the way that we see in this parable. We see this family is very well off. They have a large estate. They have servants. And later, they even have a grand banquet. And all of that wealth is coming to these two sons. And now, however, inheritance, by definition, it means that once the benefactor is no longer there, that's when you receive your wealth. That's how an inheritance works. Isn't that what he is asking for? And now the younger son, he knows this. And so how does he put it in verse 12? He says, give me the share of property that is coming to me. To put it, to put it crudely, give me the inheritance that is coming to me when you die. So in that statement, he's implying, I wish you died faster so that I could get my inheritance now. And so verse 12 says that the father surprisingly divides up the property between them. 
Now, if you look at that word property, the way that the Greek uses that word, it uses the word bios, bios. And that is very intentional. And you may know what bios mean, like biology. It means life. And that's intentional here because for the father, giving up his land was literally his life. Ask anyone from the Midwest, the land is life. And so that's what the father was being asked to do. Liquidate all of your assets, all of your estate and your land, and give it to me in cash. Pretty much give me the life that sustains you. That's what he was asking for from his father. And surprisingly, the father, he gives it up. He gives it to his son. And now we see that the story moves on, and the younger son goes into a far country, a far Gentile country, and he squanders his inheritance in reckless living, it says, in prodigal living. This reveals to us why the younger son had made such a heartless request you know, it's not as simplistic as, you know, he just wanted to indulge himself in this kind of living, this kind of promiscuous lifestyle, this lavish standing. It's actually a lot more than that. Rather, he was responding to the kind of lifestyle that he'd been used to all of his life, a life of tradition, a life of rules and expectations, living back at his father's home. And he wanted to rebel against that. He says, I don't want to keep living the way that you want me to live. Now, this parable, it doesn't sound too far removed from us because it's evident everywhere. And perhaps you can relate. The suffocating lifestyle, being tired of, of being told what to do, how to spend your time and money, what kind of school you're supposed to attend, what kind of job you're to get, perhaps having grown up in the church, the way that you see Christianity, you see God as someone who's out there to, to suffocate you, to be a, a killjoy, and you just want to be free, right? You just want to be free from all these expectations, from all of these demands and rules and traditions, and you want to be free from God because you know the kind of lifestyle he wants you to live. So what do you do? You run. You run as far as you can. And you put God at a very safe distance where you give him these things, but not this, not this, or this. But we see the Bible tells us that freedom, true freedom, it's not the absence of traditions or rules or expectations. It's not the absence of any limitations. It's not removing all these restrictions that you think God is putting on you. Now, Tim Keller puts it in his book, The Reason for God. He says, think about a fish. A fish, because it absorbs oxygen from water rather than air, it is only free when it is restricted and limited to water. If you put a fish out on grass, it's freedom to move and even live. It's not enhanced but destroyed. The fish dies if we do not honor the reality of its nature. Freedom Instead of being the lack of limits, the absence of constraints, it's submitting ourselves to the limits of our nature. He writes, the fish must honor its design. 
It is designed for water, not for land. Real freedom is finding the right restrictions in your life. And what are the restrictions and the nature and the limitations that you and I have? It is the fact that you and I are made in the image of God. And the only place you are going to find your freedom and satisfaction and fulfillment is in glorify your name. That is the place where we are free to swim free to enjoy all that God made us for. The Bible tells us he is your ultimate satisfaction. He is your joy and your freedom. And this parable captures how we respond to this reality. Instead of being what we're created to be, we want to run far from it. Where the Bible tells us you are the sons and daughters of the living God. Immerse yourself in him. Worship him. Find your deepest fulfillment. And we run as far as we can. And in verse 13, not many days later, the younger son, he gathers all that he had, all of his gifts. I work hard. I study hard. I can make a good life for myself. I gather everything that I can bring out, and I run from God. Not knowing he's the one who gave you all of your And this verse describes what we try to do when we try to avoid God. Avoiding the question of God altogether. Pushing aside the most important questions. Don't you think that it's quite funny that it's so easy for people to never ask the most important questions of life, right? Questions like, what happens when I die? What happens when tomorrow something happens and I'm no longer here? Questions like, what is the purpose of life? What's the meaning of life? What is true and genuine love? We never ask those questions. Rather, we want to ask, are the eagles going to win? What am I going to have for lunch? Brothers and sisters, I don't think it's coincidence that Satan very craftily puts your minds and your thoughts and your attentions on those questions rather than the most important questions of your life. Why? Because we want to run. We want to avoid these questions. You know why? Because deep down inside, you know the answer. It's God. John Flavel, 17th century English Puritan pastor, he writes, The soul is constituted in that it craves fulfillment from things outside itself. It will embrace earthly joys for satisfaction when it cannot reach spiritual ones. When we're not satisfied with Jesus Christ, when we don't embrace him, our restless souls must look for something else. Whenever you find yourself wanting something other than God, it's because you haven't tasted God. That's what he's saying. He's saying, truly taste God and then tell me how much you want to run after those things. When you run after those things, it's only because you haven't fully embraced all that Jesus is. Now, what happens when we run away from God? We see self-inflicted consequences, don't we? Number one, we see that this younger brother, he squanders all of his money. And number two, we don't know how to respond when the certain difficulties of life come your way. Like this younger brother. Unexpectedly, a severe famine happens to go across the land. 
the cost of food skyrockets. He then finds himself in need, hires himself out to be one of the citizens of that Gentile country. And what's the only job left? He's, only, he's sent out to, to work in the fields to feed the pigs. Do you see how low this son had become? A Jewish son from a wealthy, established family going to the far reaches of the ends of the earth, to this foreign Gentile land, he becomes a citizen of that country, meaning he had to give up his Jewish citizenship. You know how hard it is to give up your citizenship? Ask my wife. She does not want to be an American citizen. She wants to retain her Korean citizenship. But this guy, he did it. Why? Because the circumstances asked for it. He needed to survive. And what's the only job left? To work amongst the pigs. And if you know anything about the Jewish religion, what's the lowest of the lowest animals? It's the swine. We are not even supposed to touch or eat swine. And yet he's serving them. He's eating their food. And you can see that he's at the lowest of lows. And nevertheless, and this is the point here, the stage has been set for God's grace. The stage has been set for God's grace because even though he's at the lowest of lows, with the dirtiest of swine, he finds grace. Why? Because that is what God uses for him to what? Come to his senses. He comes to himself. And that's God. And that's how we should see our lives. We should see our testimonies. Whenever you see a moment where you realize, what am I doing? Why am I running? That's grace. You know, before you ask me, where's the first incidence of grace in this passage? I would have said, when God the Father runs to his son, that's grace. But you know when grace actually begins? When God in his sovereignty enables the younger son in his lowest of lows to realize, I need to go back home. I need to go back to God. And if you ever have that moment, make that connection. That's not you. That is God putting that in your heart, saying, come back home. Come back home. How many countless testimonies do we have in this church where we are running the opposite direction, but a series of events happened in my life for me to realize that I need to go back to God. Who's doing that in your life and who's going to continue to do that in your life? He will never give up his pursuit of you. The question is, what is it going to take for you to come to your senses to realize Everything else in this world will fail you. Your relationships will fail you. Your job will fail you. Your even your children will fail you. But God will never fail you. Precisely in those lowest of low moments is when you need to realize how much God is after you. And perhaps throughout your life, God answers prayers he gives you that job. He gives you those kids. He gives you that kind of lifestyle. And he answers your prayers, gives you that college. But you know what E.B. Browning writes? He says, God answers sharp and sudden on some prayers and flings the things we've asked for in our face like a gauntlet. 
And inside that gauntlet, there's a gift. You see, we receive sometimes all the things we want. God in his blessings gives it to us. But underneath that all, we are going to come to the realization that that is not our ultimate satisfaction. That's the gift. That's the grace. There's a gift in your lowest of lows. There's a gift in your desperate times. There's a gift when it seems like hope is lost. And what is that gift? It's the gift of grace, something that you can't make, you can't produce, something that God gives to you. That's the most valuable gift of all, to have this humble confession and reliance of God and this conviction of sin. I see grace in verse 17. When he comes to himself and says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and I sin against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. That's the prodigal younger brother. Number two. The prodigal older brother. So as the father receives this younger brother, and as this reconciliation happens, we see that the older brother, he's outside in the field working. He hears this commotion, comes near to the house, and he hears this music and dancing, and he has no idea what's going on. So the servant tells him that his younger brother had returned, and his father is holding this grand banquet for him. Now, this older brother, he refuses to participate. He refuses to go in. Now, note the difference between the father's response and the older brother's response. What's the father's response in verse 20? He was waiting for him. When he saw him, he felt compassion. He ran to his son with extreme joy, he fell on his neck, embracing him, kissing him. And on the other hand, in verse 28, we see that the older brother was angry and he refused to go in to this party so much that his father had to come out and beckon his older son to come in, to come celebrate with him. And we see, just like the younger brother, the older brother is running far from his father. He is in rebellion. Why? The older brother, he has a false view of his inheritance he has a false view of his inheritance he doesn't truly see it as inheritance but rather he sees it as compensation compensation what does he say to his father look how i've been slaving for you this reveals how he had viewed his relationship with his father all along if you ever worked in the corporate world and if you ever see a disgruntled work worker, someone responding to being fired, you know, what are the kinds of words that come out of their mouths? Isn't it things like, after all that I've done for this company, right? After all the sacrifices I've made for this project, isn't that the response we give when we slave away at something, expecting certain uh, 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 compensation, Expecting certain gifts, certain expectations met. And we slave away expecting those things. And when those expected expectations are not met, what comes out of our mouths? After all that I've been doing for you, God. 
after all the things that I sacrificed for you, and this is my life? Look at all the years that I've served you, and I've never disobeyed your command, the older brother says. Now here's the expectation. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Not to celebrate with his father, but to celebrate with his friends. See, the younger brother, physically, he has as far as he could be from the father. But even the older brother, even though he's physically next to the father, spiritually, he's very far. Because his mind is not with the father. His heart is not with God. He wants all the things that God can give him so that he could spend it with his friends. He received the opposite of the expectations he was waiting for. He says, when this son of yours came, the one who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Work, expectation, and then given the opposite of those expectations. He even uses the word slave, which is the direct opposite of inheritance, right? Where you inherit something, not because of what you do, but because of your sonship. See, it's not coincidence that the gospel writer Luke's that as this party was going on, when does a party happen? At night. And you see that the older brother, he's out in the field working. He's working overtime. He's trying to get those overtime hours when even the servants are inside enjoying the banquet. And do you see how he operates? He's thinking, he's thinking, if I do a little bit more, if I do A, B, and C, then surely God will give me X, Y, and Z. And this reveals our hearts, the way that we view God. Thinking, if I do this for you, God, if I obey, if I go to church and I obey in this way, then you will surely give me a good life. And the reality is you haven't loved God for who he is, but you love God for what he does for you. And that shows when we get angry with God, when we don't receive the blessings that we think we deserve for having doing, doing certain things or not having done bad things. Even as we come to church on Sunday, doing as many Christian things as we can in our lives, we start to count the blessings that we know is coming, don't we? God, I've been good these past few weeks. I've been praying. Surely my life will be a little better next week, right? I've been reading the Bible, so tomorrow I can expect my life to be full of, full of everything that I wanted. Whether you're new to church, whether you've been attending church for a long time, it is so easy for us to go back into that kind of thinking. You know what the opposite of that thinking is? It's thinking... When I haven't prayed, I haven't been reading the Bible, I haven't been active in God. Therefore, it makes sense why all these bad things are happening to me. Have you ever thought that? That's the exact same way this older brother thinks. Thinking that his inheritance is contingent upon what he does. See, this older brother... He feels like his life has been made a mockery. 
all of the hard work that he's put in on this farm as his younger brother is out there living his life. And throughout the years, as this older brother is working for his inheritance, what do you think he's been doing all this time? All these years, you know what he's been doing? He's probably counting everything. Five goats here, 20 sheep here, three calves here. Oh, I want to measure this land that's coming to me. Because once the younger brother received his inheritance, everything that's left is his, right? You know, I did the same thing. When I was engaged, when I knew I was going to move out of my parents' house, I knew exactly how many pots and pans and desks and furniture my mom had, knowing that this is what I'm going to take with me. Where before I had no idea where the pots were. I had no idea where any of these things are. But as soon as I knew that these things were coming to me, I knew exactly what I was getting. The older brother knew exactly what was under his possession. And the father takes his calf, slaughters it to prepare a banquet for his younger son. So the older brother is thinking, that's my blessing, God, and you're giving it to him, the one who is undeserved. That's mine, not yours, God. It's not yours to freely give. You're messing up here, God. Isn't that what we think? We look at this person's life. We look at that person's life and say, God, you're messing up here. I'm doing the right things. I'm following your orders, but why are you slaughtering my calf for these people? I deserve this. Forgiveness. The forgiveness that the father gives his younger son is freely given, but it is never free. It is freely given, but never free. To be able to receive back the younger brother, think with me, what happens? A calf is killed. And to receive him as a son again, the father has to redistribute his inheritance again. A half of the half, meaning there's less for the older son. Do you see how when forgiveness happens, someone has to absorb the cost. When you forgive somebody in your life, you have to absorb the cost, the pain, the struggle to be able to trust that person again, right? Forgiveness is never free. And just like in this passage, forgiveness is not free. The older brother, it took the expense of the older brother. And so he's filled with hate and resentment towards the younger brother. He sees the younger brother as a threat, someone who's squandering not his own inheritance, but, but his own inheritance, Earlier when the younger brother foolishly asked for his inheritance to run away, where was the older brother? He was nowhere in the story. Why? Because he didn't care. Because that wasn't his money. But now that the younger brother is back, now that he's starting to take claim on the things that he believes is his, that's when he starts to care. And he says, the son of yours squandered all your money. He disassociates himself with the younger brother. He doesn't call him my brother. Your son squandered your money. And he's declaring himself as innocent. You know, a few years ago, my uncle passed away, and I was in Korea spending a few, you know, final days with him. And just during that time, we were just hearing stories of his childhood. And with my father there, I heard one story where my father wanted to become a musician, wanted to become a pop star. And my mom says, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? 
right? Because that was my aspirations in high school. My father one time told his mom, my grandmom, I'm going to quit school. I'm going to go out and make the best eight-track this world has ever seen. And he takes his guitar and he wants to show his mom him playing. And right there and then, gets kicked out of the house. And he has to run so fast because my, my grandmom is coming to, to, to punish him that he doesn't even take his shoes. And so he's out. And back then in rural Korea, there were no paved roads, so his foot were very, feet were very dirty. But he still had his guitar. And he's out in the park, and he's just sitting there, just strumming away at his guitar like a beggar. And as my uncle was sharing this story, my dad says, you know, that's the one image that I have of your uncle that I will never forget. Because right there at that park, as I'm playing, and I guess ironically, this kind of great background music, I see your uncle walking to me. And guess what's in his hands? Two rubber shoes, my shoes. And he says, I will never forget that image because that tells me even if my parents will disown me, my brother will never disown me. They were telling me this story because I was arguing with my sister about something. They were trying to tell me that you should take care of one another. But do you see? This is what the older brother should have done. He should have run after his younger brother. He should have been the first one to wait for him. He should have been the one that more ecstatic than his father. That his lost younger brother had come back. Grace is freely given but never free. For him to call him come back, it was at the expense, the bios of his older brother. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, calls Jesus as the firstborn among many brothers. He's the firstborn, the true elder brother. And we see that while this older brother failed, we see that Jesus will never fail because it took the life, the bias of Jesus to run after you And do you see how though you are forgiven in the gospel, that forgiveness is never free? What did it cost? It didn't cost a calf. It didn't cost two shoes. It cost the very life of your God to come pursue after you when he took on human flesh with you in mind, saying, I will never stop pursuing you. And when you do come back, You know what Jesus does? John chapter 14, verse 2, Jesus says, In my Father's house, there are many rooms, and I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you there myself. For where I am, you may be also. He's not absent. He's not far away. He's not enjoying his inheritance in heaven. But he personally is the first person you're going to see when you finally see the glory of God. The one who's been waiting for you all along. Romans chapter 8 says, Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for your heart right now, saying, God, help him to come back. He's my brother. He deserves to be here. Grace is not free, although it's freely given. 
It was at the expense of your older brother, Jesus Christ, who forewent the comforts and the glories of his heavenly estate, taking on the suffering of man and the wrath of God for your waywardness, the glories of heaven. It wasn't exclusively his, but rather he shares it amongst you and me. And on top of that, what's Jesus' response? There is so much more joy in heaven when a sinner comes back. That's the true older brother that we have. Finally, the prodigal God. The prodigal God. And here I just want to end with an anecdote. Uh, this is a story that the president of my seminary once shared a long time ago. And it's a story that he got from Mayana Buddhism. It's a Buddhist story, and it's a story that's similar in some aspects to our story here, our parable. And this is how it goes. A young man leaves his father's house, and he's gone for many years. The father, realizing this, he runs after his son. And throughout his travels, the father, he acquires all of this wealth, and he becomes very wealthy. On the other hand, the son, he ends up being a beggar. this traveler, this roamer who comes from, goes from place to place. And one day, after many years have passed, he comes across to the same city that his father is residing in. And he comes into this palace, and he sees his father. His father wearing these great robes of embroidered jewelry, having a footstool made of, of jewels, having all of these servants waiting at his feet. He's trans, uh, doing all of these business transactions. And the beggar, the son, he's thinking, I need to get out of here before someone catches me and makes me a slave. I need to get out of here because I'm trespassing. And right when he's about to leave, the father, he notices, that's my son. So he secretly tells his servants, go get him. And as soon as the servants grab the son, the son faints. Because he's thinking, my life is done. I'm caught for trespassing. I am dead. A few hours later, there's a splash of water on his face, and he wakes up. And the first thing he hears is, I want you to work. I'm going to give you a job. I'm going to give you a job for your life. And so this son, he goes out into the city quarters, and he's given a job, shoveling. Think back then, they didn't have a sanitary system. So he's shoveling all these various things for many, many years. He's given him a small shack to live in. And after many, many years, his father, he's watching him from afar. And he's seeing that there's a transformation that takes place. At one time, the father, still not knowing the son, that he's his father, he says, you know, I want to reward you for your work. I want to give you all of these wealth. I want to take you in and be my number one servant. And the son, he refuses it. Why? Because he learned his lesson. To not chase after wealth, to not chase after these luxurious things, but to just find contentment in what he has. So he refuses this master, this father's offer, and he continues to live in his shack, and he continues to work his lowly job. Now again, 20, 30 years pass, and this father, this master of the city, he's about to die. And he gathers all his relatives, all his servants, and before he breathes his final breath, he says, that servant is my son. He is worthy to be my son. Give him my inheritance. And that's how the story goes. What's the difference between that story 
in our story here in Luke 15. What's the moral of this particular story? Isn't it once you've changed, once you've finally learned your lessons, once you've finally learned to not go after riches, once you've become a loving, obedient, and wise and prudent son, only then will you receive the inheritance of the Father. Isn't that the point of the story? Once you finally learn just how messed up you are and that you change and you become a better son, you become a better person, then you deserve the Father's love. You know what the difference between this story is, between our story and the Bible? It's grace. Because in our parable, the son doesn't lift a finger. But as soon as he says, I want to work for you, the father says, stop right there. Bring the best of my robes. You are my son. And then Clowney says, what's the difference? It's grace. Amazing grace. Watch the father in our parable. Before the son lifted a finger, far down the road, the father sees a familiar figure. He sweeps up the skirt of his robe. He thrusts it into his belt. He runs down the road to meet his son. He flings his arms around him, hugs him to his chest, kisses the dusty cheeks of that swineherd. Father, the son begins, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And what does the father say? He doesn't say, go to work. Change. Repay back what you squandered. Bring the best for my son. And that best is the life of Jesus Christ. Freely given, whether you are the younger son or whether you are the older son. As you read this story, perhaps you relate yourself to the younger son running away. It's been a long time since you've been with God. Perhaps you relate yourself to the older son. You've been a Christian for a long time, and you've been doing all the right things, but in your heart there's discontentment because life is not going the way that you want it to be. Perhaps there's a little bit of both in you. Do you see the prodigal God? The word prodigal means lavish, wasteful. And the point of this passage is not the prodigal son, but the prodigal God who wastefully gives his grace upon you, who lavishly gives you his unconditional love, whether you are the younger son running from him or whether you're the older son thinking that God owes you things. To the younger son, he embraces him. To the older son, the father knows my older son is not here. While I'm enjoying this party, my older son is far from me. And he doesn't just wait. He leaves the banquet and says, son, come. Come into this party. Yes, you are working, but you are far from me. Everything I have is yours. Come joy, enjoy the, the love and joy of your father. So wherever you find yourself this morning, understand that you have a prodigal God who's going to be pursuing you no matter how far you go, no matter how close you are, but how resentful you may become. 
he will continue to lavish his grace upon you day upon day, even before you lift a finger. That's grace. So whether you come to this sudden realization in your lowest of lows, when you see your God beckoning you to come in and say, enjoy this gospel of grace every week, every Sunday, it's God saying, come back home. This is where you belong. Let's pray.